0: Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. It's new to us every morning. And Lord, we're so thankful that you are instilling day by day a measure of faithfulness in our hearts. Forgive us when we are faithless. And Lord, I pray that we will be uh, drawn to a deeper understanding of who you are through our daily walk and through our encounters with you in the word. Lord, I ask that you will be our teacher today, that your Spirit will instruct us in the depths of our hearts. Father, we come before you acknowledging the fact that in our flesh there dwells no good thing, and it's only because of the work of the Spirit of God that we are uh, members of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we ask that you will bless this morning in the service and uh, that you will empower the Word as it is preached. We ask that in every class here this morning, your Spirit will be at work. And Lord, as the word of God is proclaimed in this city, in this state, and around this country, we ask that it will uh, transform hearts by the thousands, and that your kingdom will, will move forward inexorably this day, and that you will bring great revival to this land. We thank you for the fact that you are the sovereign God in whom we trust. In the name of your Son, amen. In the section of Deuteronomy that uh, begins with chapter 12 and goes through chapter 16, we find that the focus is on kind of a summary of the ceremonial laws, most of which were elucidated in some detail in the book of Leviticus. In the midst of this particular section and that study, there is a passage which is a powerful warning to Israel relative to the issue Of false prophets and heresy so I'd like if we could this morning for us to turn to the 13th chapter of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 13 and I'd like to read the first five verses if a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you saying let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if your love for the Lord your God, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet, or that dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death because he has counseled rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall purge evil from among you. This passage, I think, again illustrates the truth that... God does not train up the spiritual soldier simply for the parade ground, but for the battlefield. And of course, in this case, the battlefield is the battlefield of heresy. God warned that Israel would experience in the years ahead the coming of false prophets. And some of those false prophets, they aren't gonna come along and just, you know, their beliefs, they will actually perform signs and wonders. They will be able to do this. Perform signs, and wonders. And what he is saying to them is, you don't analyze their signs and wonders and therefore decide to believe in them. You analyze their message. And does the message conform to the word of God? Does the message conform to what Moses has taught Israel through these first five books of the scripture, the Pentateuch? If his message does not square with the already, presented, message of God, through God's ordained prophet Moses. If the message does not square with that, then this person is a false prophet, no matter how impressive his signs and wonders. You're probably familiar with the fact that uh, there is a, a major emphasis today in certain areas on signs and wonders. And, and we can understand that in the sense that many signs and wonders are shown in the Scripture, but that can lead us very far astray. Because if, uh, you probably know the song that A.B. Simpson wrote called himself, you know. Once it was the message, but now it's him alone. Once it was this, and but it's really what we want is, is God himself, Jesus Christ. It's not the thing, it's not the manifestation, it's the reality of who he is. That is what is important. Satan will endeavor to win over to him all that he can through blatant attack and intimidation. But if blatant attack and intimidation does not work, he will use subterfuge and he is good at it. In the last days of time, we're told in Scripture that the whole world is going to be deceived by a representative of the great dragon who will, in the words of Revelation, perform great signs So that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell in the earth because of the signs. They will be deceived because of the signs, the wonders that will be performed. As we know, if we've made much of a study of the Old Testament, many false prophets did arise in Israel. And often the Israelites followed after those false prophets. Let me just read one example to you from 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 5. What this story is telling us is that Ahab has decided that he wants to capture the city of Ramoth-Gilead, which was within the limits of what Israel had been given originally, but was being held at this time by the Syrians. And so what he does is he asks his southern neighbor, Jehoshaphat, king of, of uh, Judea, if he will come and help him capture Ramoth Gilead. And so in verse 5 we read, Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, who was Ahab, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. You know, Jehoshaphat's wise. Let's find out what the Lord wants us to do here. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And he said to them, shall I go up against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, now Jehoshaphat had a little bit of a doubt here. These guys seemed a little bit too much like a bunch of sycophants here. And, and so as is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here <laughs> that we may inquire of him? I mean, it's kind of an implication that maybe these 400 aren't exactly prophets of the Lord, even though that's what they testified as being. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Well, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, oh, Don't say that, you know. Let's, let's hear from him. Uh, down at uh, verse 13. Then the messenger who went up to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Now this is the guy the king sent to bring Micaiah. He's giving him a little advice. Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up and succeed. Then the Lord will give it into the hands of the king. And the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? (laughs) If you understand who Ahab is, (laughs) that is an absurd statement. So verse 17. So Micaiah says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep who have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Then the king of Israel turned to Jehoshaphat, and said, I told you so. Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Micaiah was the prophet of the Lord, but he was up against 400 false prophets. People who simply, whatever the king wanted, that's what they would say because they were ingratiating themselves with the king. They were probably on his payroll, you know? And Micaiah was on the Lord's payroll. And uh, so Micaiah, sure, you wanna hear that? Go ahead, go on up, it's okay, go up. <laughs> well, even Ahab, as spiritually blind as he was, knew that Micaiah <laughs> was not telling him what the Lord had said. And so he gives him the straight truth. The, f- the strange part about it is, of course, that um, it leads to, d- to, to Ahab's death. He dies because he goes up anyway to try to take Ramoth Gilead. We might ask, how can it be that God's people, God's people could be deceived by a false prophet? Well, the answer lies, I think, in two things. First is a lack of knowledge of the word of God. And secondly is a a lack of belief in the authority of the word of God. Those are not necessarily... The same thing, a person can have knowledge of the Word of God in the sense of like a piece of literature, but not believe in the authority of it. And that's today where so many churches that call themselves Christian churches, which at one time in their history were out on the cutting edge, are now on the rocks. They have sunk like the Titanic, in effect, in terms of any real impact in this world, because they don't believe in the authority of the Word of God. Let me look at, or or read a couple of passages from the New Testament that speak to this issue. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and 4. Paul says, If one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, in the person of the Holy Spirit, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted at this time, and you bear this beautifully. Verse 12, But what I am doing I will continue to do, that I may cut off opportunity for those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but whose end shall be according to their deeds. Satan comes as an angel of light, and Satan can paint a picture that looks so good. And if all you have is a very a surface understanding of the word of God, it's going to sound good, it sounds scriptural, and you get sucked in. One of the things that's always impressed me was the fact that the deeper you know the word of God, the greater you have come into a personal walk with the Lord through understanding his word, the sooner red flags fly when false doctrine comes along, the sooner you see it. Abraham Lincoln one time is said to have said that you can fool, what is it, uh, all the people Some of the time and some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. (laughs) Well, the people who don't know the Word of God will be fooled and have been fooled. And that's one of the reasons why the cults have become so successful. You know, the Mormon Church has grown to 10 million people worldwide. And Jehovah's Witness, who knows how far that has spread into the millions these false doctrines have, have gleaned immense fo- numbers of followers. And often, it, it's, I heard the statistic once from Walter Martin that the Jehovah's Witness movement is made up primarily not of atheists, but of ex-Catholics and ex-Baptists. Ex-Catholics and ex-Baptists. That they make up the bulk of the followers of the Jehovah's Witness movement. People who don't know the word to the point where they recognize falsehood when it comes along. Paul further talks about this to the church at Galatia. Turn over a page or so to the first chapter of Galatians at verse six, where he says, "'I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him "'who called you by the grace of Christ "'for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we are an angel from heaven, even Moroni, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so we say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. For I am now, for I For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? I didn't read that right. (laughs) For am I now, yes, seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men. For I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This, of course, apparently refers to his three years in the backside of the desert when he went to private school with the Lord. In Paul's day, the church was very quickly assailed by two major cults. One was the uh, Judaistic cult, the idea that in order for you to be a Christian, if you are are a, a Gentile, if you're to become a Christian, you have to first become a Jew you have to become circumcised, you have to believe in the law of Moses, you have to do all the things Jews did before you could actually believe in the Jewish Messiah. Well, that was a false teaching, and and Paul dealt very uh, powerfully with that. And the council at Jerusalem around the year 50 uh, pretty much set that aside. But a more dangerous cult was the cult of Gnosticism. Uh, The idea that the flesh is not real. Uh, That What you do in the flesh is irrelevant because it's the spirit that actually is all that really matters in this universe, and that you come to a knowledge of the ultimate spirit through a whole series of emanations of differing levels of spirits. You know, Gnosticism was not something that was just locked into Christianity. There was a Jewish form of Gnosticism. There's Gnosticism in almost any religion. Even within Islam, there's a Gnostic form of Islam. And that was a real situation, and that's really what Paul's talking about here in in Galatians. This is a different gospel. This is not the gospel I've talked about. This is a different spirit. This is a different Jesus. This is not the Jesus that I preach to you. This is not the Jesus of the scripture. In our day, we're faced with cults, far more numerous than had developed in just the first century. It took quite a few centuries for many of them to develop, but develop they did, and today they're, they're rampant Some of them are very blatant, of course, such as the cult of Mormonism. And once, I mean, it looks good on the surface and the people look so neat, but when you get inside it, you discover it is so foreign to what the Bible teaches that it might as well be Hinduism. Uh, It is that foreign to what the Bible actually teaches. But there are some more subtle ones that are even within the evangelical church itself, which pervert the truth, such as the health and wealth gospel. You know, this whole idea that if you're a true member of the kingdom of God, you will be wealthy and you will be healthy. And if you are sick and if you don't have enough wealth, it's because you don't have faith. I mean, it's it just isn't what the scripture teaches, because Jesus says, in this life, you will have persecution. Jesus said, the poor will always be with us. Uh, Jesus said many things that deny that particular doctrine flat out. So we need to be very, very careful and very, very aware because these kinds of cults are popping up all the time, and they're assaulting us from every direction. And one of their chief goals is, of course, cash. They want some cash uh, to keep their program going. And so on the radio and on television, through the mail, uh, they will present a side that looks really good, but when you really get into it, you discover it isn't what it looks like on the surface. You know, it would be a lot easier to deal with if the church hadn't become so denominationalized. You know, if we were still one body, it would be easier for us to, to spot the, the, uh, the cults uh, quicker uh, than it is. But there's so many denominations today that you don't know But what this idea that's coming along is just that of another denomination. And of course, unless you know the word and begin to probe into the depths of the teaching, Israel was warned, and so we are warned. We must know the word. And we must place our whole belief in the authority of the Word of God. And we must live and walk by the authority of the Word of God. And if we are going to to avoid the pitfalls that surround us, uh, to draw us off uh, the truth and into heresy, as innocuous as it might seem, we've got to know the Word of God. One of the battle cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura, Martin Luther and, and other reformers proclaim the fact that the Christian is to live his life and to develop his faith based only on the Scripture, not on, on the rulings of councils or the proclamations of popes or tradition or anything else, only on the Scripture, because all else will lead away from the truth. It is inevitable. It's like Murphy's Law, that if we don't follow the Scripture, we will be misled we will be misled. You can count on it. And that's why it's so important that we individually understand and know the Word of God in depth so that the flag flies instantly. When somebody says something and you know in the back of your mind there's something wrong, the Scripture pops into your mind that directly refutes that. If you've dealt with Jehovah's Witnesses at the door, you know that they've gone to great lengths to try to... uh, Develop an answer to every single scripture that you bring up uh, to try to refute their teachings, particularly uh, upon Jesus Christ. And uh, if you've really got them against the wall, they'll pull out that little book <laughs> that they have, which, uh, and they'll follow through the pages to find this verse, and they'll, well, this is what it says about this verse, you know. You've you really got them going when they actually pull out that book, finally, to try to refute what what you're saying. But of course, what they're doing is badly perverting. The, the word of, of God. Throughout Scripture, we have teaching concerning heresy, false teachings. Of course, it began in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say he will die? Oh, I don't think so. And of course, in our modern sophisticated society, the teaching of Scripture in its flat-out stripped-down truth is, is repulsive. And the Scripture even says that it would be so and yet we have to stick with it. Whether we seem like we're some kind of narrow-minded bigots or not, Tough. that's part of persecution. That's part of persecution. And fortunately at this time, uh, we would not have happened to us what uh, happened to uh, John Huss, for example, when he preached the the truth and then was called before the council and was burned at the stake with a heretic's dunce cap on his head. Uh, That probably won't happen to us, but uh, nevertheless, persecution does come, and it can be almost as, as devastating in many ways. But we have to stick to the truth and not water it down, simply to please men. Well, the next section of Deuteronomy, beginning with chapter 17 through chapter 25, deals with civil, civil and criminal laws. Again, largely restatement of what has already been taught in, in Leviticus, But I'd like to read a passage which I think is uh, very, very significant here at the end of chapter 17, beginning at verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, and you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your own countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return again that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, and he shall learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and the son and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. This is a fascinating passage to me, uh, because it deals specifically, first of all, with two basic principles or attributes of God. First of all, it deals with the attribute of omniscience, and it also deals with the attribute of mercy. His omniscience, God's omniscience is demonstrated in the fact that he is saying here that when you enter the land and the Lord gives it to you and you say you want a king. Well, Israel will not say that for nearly 300 years. It's going to be nearly 300 years before they actually start saying this. So God is demonstrating his ability to see into the future. Of course, not just to see into the future. I mean, he knows it all. And and he's demonstrating that here in this particular passage. But he is also demonstrating his mercy here because he could have said, and when you ask for a king, I'm going to smite you with fire from heaven. He could have said that. But he doesn't say that. God is demonstrating the attribute of mercy because he had said to his people, and he will continue to say to his people, I want you to function as a theocracy. I want you to, to... Uh, to uh, look to me as your king. I will be the one in authority over you and I will set up whom I will set up and that person will guide you through this time period. He had, of course, the system of high priests and then, of course, he raised up a system of judges. And this was the means by which he was going to rule Israel. And they would be raised up according to God's plan and God's purpose and they would serve him and him alone. Now, of course, you know from the study of judges, some of the judges were real jerks. But nevertheless, you know, they were raised up by God and they were given an opportunity to serve Him. And most of them did to some degree, and, you know, they may have failed along the way like Samson did and Barak and others, but nevertheless, um, God did use them. But He is saying, what you're going to do is you're going to want a king, and even though that's not what I have commanded, God did not establish the kingship in Israel by divine fiat. He established it by virtue of the request of Israel. It's, to me, in many ways like the accusation that uh, we just heard about recently when Pastor Dale was talking about marriage, that the Pharisees waved in Jesus' face the idea that, uh, you know, is it right to be divorced for any reason or not? And because Moses gave us the right to have a divorce, and of course Jesus says because of the hardness of your hearts. And, and so it's the same kind of a principle here. God allowed it, because Israel wanted it, but that wasn't God's perfect plan for Israel. And the kingship was not God's plan for Israel. And that's why you can't really find in the Israelite kingship a mirror image of the kingdom of God. It's not like God established the kingship to mirror the image of God or the kingdom of God, like he established the marriage to reflect the Christ-church relationship. Uh, It was something that he allowed to happen because of the hardness of of their hearts, it's interesting that he would make provision for their desire, and it was a prophecy of what would happen, in the not well as I said about three hundred years down the line. Let's look at First Samuel, chapter eight. First Samuel chapter, chapter eight, beginning at verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and he said to them, "Behold," they said to him, "Behold, you have grown old." And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they have to say to you. For they have not rejected you But they have rejected me from being king over them. God, of course, in his omniscience, knew exactly the reasoning behind what they were demanding. They were not satisfied with God. Because had they been satisfied with God, they would not have been terribly concerned you know, inordinately concerned, at least, about the fact that Samuel's sons were not walking in the ways of the Lord because they would have known that God would raise up someone to be their leader as he had for the last 300 years. So why couldn't he now? He very much could. I mean, Eli, who was replaced by Samuel, his sons were wicked, and yet God raised up Samuel. So God could have done the same thing as far as Samuel and his sons were concerned. So what God is saying, really, what's behind their thinking is, they're rejecting me and the theocracy which I have established for these last 300 years. God's word applies in all conditions and in all epochs. And he gave them instructions concerning a political position that did not even exist in Israel at that time and wouldn't for generations and it's interesting that God gives five very clear commands here in this passage. Commands which, if heeded, would have given Israel the best kings that any nation has ever known in its history. You've all heard, of course, it's because it's been so often repeated, the 19th century British politician, Lord Acton, who simply made the observation that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And if that hasn't been the truth of history... I don't know what has been, because it's happened inevitably. In this particular passage, God gives five things concerning the king. First of all, he says, the king must be an Israelite. The king cannot be a foreigner. He must be one of your countrymen. This was very, very important, because if a foreigner were to be put in power, that foreigner does not understand the people, He does not have compassion on the people. If you want a good illustration of that from secular history, all you have to do is turn back to the early 17th century when good Queen Bess uh, died, you know, Elizabeth I. She died in 1603, and she, like her half-brother and half-sister, died without uh, children. There were no heirs to, to Henry VIII. These were his three children. None of them had any children. And so, in order to find a replacement for her, they had to go back up and over, and and they came to the King of Scotland. The King of Scotland was related to the Tudor dynasty by marriage. And so they brought him onto the throne. But you see, Scotland and England aren't very far apart, and they pretty much speak the same language. But Scotland was a very different country than England in those days. And and the Scottish Parliament was pretty much a, um, a rubber stamp for whatever the King wanted, the English Parliament was not. And the Scottish people had become Presbyterian, for the most part, and, and the English people were not. They were predominantly Anglican. And, and so when James I was raised to the throne of England, he didn't understand the English, and they didn't understand him, and they had a real difficult time. In fact, throughout his reign, it was just a battle between the king and parliament and the people. I mean, we know him mostly because, of course, Jamestown, which is named after him, was founded, and thus our colonies were begun. And we know him because he authorized the translation of the scripture known as the King James Version. But he was not a godly man. And there were, there were so many things which happened that demonstrated the fact that when you stick somebody on your throne who doesn't really understand who you are, you've got trouble. And that's exactly what God is saying here. If you put a foreigner in the throne of Israel, I mean, it's like, putting a pagan in past, as pastor of your church. I mean, who would ever dream of doing that? That is, if you are a church of true believers, who would ever dream of doing that? I mean, a lot of churches have pagans in their pastors, pastorates, but, <laughs> but that's because there's pagans in the, in the congregation too. One of the things, of course, he would do would be to introduce alien gods who would turn Israel into a nation of apostates. Secondly, he says something. uh, We don't really get the point at first, maybe. He says the king is not to multiply horses for himself. Now, of course, this wasn't because the king would thus get into horse racing and become a gambling man. It doesn't have anything to do with that. So we might say, what's the problem? Why can't a king have all the horses he wants? He's king. Well, of course, this implies dependence upon the military for the security of your land rather than depending upon God who had been the deliverer of Israel for lo these many years. He said to Israel, I chose you not because you were a great and mighty nation. You were the least of all nations. So obviously Israel wasn't going to be able to stand up and, and go forth. I mean, that's the struggle of modern Israel tiny little country over there trying to fight all these massive neighbors. And they're not doing it in the power of the Lord. They're doing it in the power of their own might. And it's a struggle. And they're having a really difficult time, as as we understand. And of course, Egypt was one of the major sources of horses in those days. And so he says, if you are to multiply horses and you go down to Egypt to get these horses, you are reestablishing dependence upon Egypt. For military help, you're depending on an outside power to help you, not me. Egypt, come help us, we're in trouble. Well, you read through the Kings, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles in there, and you'll discover what happened to Israel every time they invited a pagan power to come and help them. They ended up being ruled by that pagan power. I mean, it was so dumb. But you see, if you don't pay attention to the word of the Lord, that's what happens. Every time, it is inevitable. Making a pact with Egypt was like making a pact with the devil. Egypt had been their land of bondage, and anybody who remembered that would eschew any kind of a contact with Egypt that would require dependence upon Egypt in any way. But but let's see what happened. Let me let me turn for a moment to First Kings chapter ten. Now there is a real enigma in in the in the uh, story of the kings, and that enigma is a man by the name of Solomon. The wisest man who ever had lived and a man who followed after God in his young years and yet a man who did, violated virtually everything God said here. Verse 26, 1 Kings 10. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem and the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. He made cedars as plentiful as sycamores that are in the lowland. Also, Solomon imported horses from Egypt and from Kew, which is uh, Cilicia. It's a region down in the southeast part of Asia Minor. They're Basically the area where Paul later would come from. And the king's merchants procured them from Kew for a price. And a chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And by the same means, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Aramaeans. Arms trade. Buying arms from Egypt and Cilicia and selling arms to the Hittites and to the Aramaeans. Solomon violated this condition. And if you know the story of Solomon, in fact, we'll be reading a little bit more of it you know that Solomon was the last king of united Israel. The last king of united Israel. Thirdly, the king was not to multiply wives to himself. Now, the kings of the world, down through history, have almost universally exploited their power to establish harems, or at least to have multiple mistresses. The kings of Israel were not to consider royal power their personal prerogative. Because they were king didn't mean that was their power to use as they wished. They were merely to be servants. They were simply to be the tool in the hand of God who was the author of power. It was his power. They were just to be his agent. Just as you and I, if we're to make any impact in this world today, it isn't going to be by our might or by our power because I'm sure we've all tried that at one time. We know we didn't get anywhere. It's got to be God working through us to change somebody's life, or it won't happen. The kings of Israel were not to use their power for their own lusts, and they were not to exploit others, which was very much the practice of godless kings throughout that region and, of course, throughout history. Of course, primarily, the Scripture had already made it quite clear that marriage what marriage was. But the kings of the nations of the world often used it as a political tool. They would use it to seal alliances with other powers. Of course, no Israelite king would do that, right? Well, let me just read a verse to you. Then Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Solomon formed a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter. Solomon the wise. Make a political alliance bound by marriage with a godless king. Is that wise? No. Solomon knew better, did it anyway. Solomon knew better about all these things, he did it anyway. I guess we can't totally throw stones at him because you and I know better and we do things anyway, don't we? Going back to the little story I read earlier about Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat was the king of Israel, uh, I'm sorry, of Judea. Jehoshaphat, we're told, did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. Ahab was (laughs) was the king of Israel and Ahab did nothing but evil in the sight of the Lord and yet Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab. Now, it wasn't sealed with a marriage at this point, even though there were marriage seals between Israel and Judea, but Jehoshaphat made an alliance to go to war with Ahab against the enemy of Ahab, and in the fighting, Jehoshaphat nearly lost his life. In fact, at one point it says he yelled and tried to get away and fortunately he was saved and Ahab was not because if you remember the story, the scripture says that Ahab dressed up as if he were just a common soldier, not as the king and he had Jehoshaphat dress up as the king. I mean, Jehoshaphat must, the elevator must not have quite made it to the top (laughs) at that particular moment anyway. And the scripture tells us that an enemy soldier drew an arrow at random and let it fly and it hit Ahab right in the, in the weak spot, in the chink in his armor, where the armor didn't cover and, Tow! I mean, draw, just tow! kill a king. <laughs> if that isn't the sovereignty of God, I, I don't know what is. The most obvious reason, of course, that kings were not to multiply wives to themselves was that God had commanded monogamy from the very beginning. God had said to Adam that he was to cleave to his wife and they were to become one flesh, not one fleshes or some other thing. They were to be one flesh. And you and I know well from Ephesians, because our pastor's been leading us through Ephesians, that the marriage relationship parallels the relationship between Christ and his church. To add others to the relationship either in a natural relationship between physical people or to try to add something else into the relationship between God and the church is to create jealousy, it's to create strife, it is to create division, not unity. Many a king has been destroyed by the factions within his harem because even though the king will begin to look at the women he adds to his harem as just as if they are things, they are people and they are people with desires and they are people who know how to plot and they are people who are jealous of one another and they are people who will ultimately bring about the collapse of that king. And if you look through the history of China, for example, or you look through the history of the Ottoman Empire and you will just see so much intrigue, you can't believe it, so much intrigue. And so many emperors brought down, or, or sultans brought down by intrigue within their own harem, finally, to multiply wives. And this was God's direct warning, of course, to the Israelite kings, was to ensure the introduction of false gods and to bring judgment upon Israel because of these false gods. And of course, we all know that to be one of Solomon's great failures. Chapter 11 of 1st Kings. 1 Kings 11, 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. Every day was Valentine's Day with Solomon. <laughs> And he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. What mountain is that? Mount of Olives. You believe that? On the Mount of Olives. And for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign women who burned incense and sacrifice to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this, you have not kept my commandment and my statutes, which I have commanded you. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of your hand, out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. The consequences of violating the word of God are vast. Enormous, long-lasting, and they impact so many lives. Solomon turned his back on the Lord, and as a result, God stripped the kingdom from Rehoboam, his son. Because Rehoboam turned out to be a bigger fool than his father. Because Rehoboam said, my little finger will be thicker than my father's thigh, and I will whip you with scorpions. (laughs) And so the people said, fine, we don't want you as king. And they chose Jeroboam, who, of course, was no more godly than Rehoboam, but nevertheless unrelated to the royal family. And so the kingdom became divided, and it remained divided until each was destroyed. Rehoboam lost 10 tribes. All he had remaining to him was Judah and then, of course, the little kind of attachment of Benjamin. And to some degree, tribal people from Simeon lived within Judea also. But basically, the big tribe of Judea was the main one, and that's why the country was called Judah, kingdom of Judah. And that's why the people were later called Jews. Well, there are two or more things that uh, God said uh, to, about the kings uh, of Israel, and I don't want to uh, rush over them. So One has to do with the wealth, and the other has to do with the very, very important positive thing which would prevent him from doing all these other things, and that is you will copy the Word of God, and you will know the Word of God, and you will live by the Word of God every day of your life. And had they done that, would the rest of it happened? I don't think so. But it says directly in this passage, Solomon knew the truth, but he deliberately disobeyed. Deliberately disobeyed.